today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, uh, an announcement about a tentative agreement uh, be reached between Unifor uh, and uh, the Ford Motor Company. Uh, of course, Unifor had uh, signaled out Ford as the first uh, of the th- big three, as it were, uh, that they were going to try to negotiate with. And uh, th- we'll talk about the other two in just a couple of minutes. But this is uh, what many people are considering to be a groundbreaking and very innovative new deal. Uh, Global News' Sandy Salerno gives us the uptake. Most of the money, $1.8 billion of it, will go toward the production of five electric vehicles and battery production in Oakville. Unifor National President Jerry Diaz is pleased Ford is making the investment. When I selected Ford to be the target, that we had no product for the Oakville assembly plant, as Ford announced, the edge would come to at the end of its production schedule. With no vehicles lined up, Diaz says he was determined to solidify a product for that Oakville plant. I think it's fair to say today... That as an organization, we hit a home run. Work to retool the factory is expected to start in 2024 with the first of five electric cars rolling up the line in 2025. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Rafael Gomez, who is the director of the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of Toronto. Rafael, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Bill. What's your read on on the deal? As, uh, obviously, Mr. Diaz is uh, euphoric about this. Is, is that well-placed? I think so for him and definitely his members, especially those that were tied uh, to the Ford plant um, in Oakville. I think, um, you know, it's it's uh, a good news story in what has otherwise been a pretty uh, bleak set of months. Um, I don't I don't think we uh, should just be obviously not um, uncritical of every aspect of, of it. I mean, I think there was a major commitment from government to pony up funds. And, and we've seen what other companies have done in the past with those funds. They work to the letter of whatever agreement is done, and then they do what is in their best interest, like we saw in Oshawa, mm-hmm. which had received a huge amount of money. And as soon as that contract that with the government had expired to not move jobs, they closed it down. I think the difference here, of course, is the nature of what's being built, which is clearly the future of where auto is going in terms of renewable sustainable uh, electric vehicle production. I think that's that's where the key is that might justify the major investments made by governments. And just one added point that if the federal government is, is ponying up most, most of the money, that's probably better than the provincial government, which has more limited resources and more limited revenue tools. I mean, the federal government is essentially bankrolling everything through the Bank of Canada. And there doesn't seem to be a problem with anyone uh, upset with with the Bank of Canada's uh, moves to basically underwrite all of the federal government spending. In fact, every government around the world is basically doing the same thing. So if the federal government is indeed the major partner, that's probably okay. Although on a national scale, what does that mean? It means that, again, Ontario is seen as getting preferential treatment, whereas the West is being sort of um, being neglected. So the federal government will have to then tread carefully and maybe have to have something else that will help the West equally uh, as it's helping uh, the East, or at least Ontario. Well, we saw that in 2009, didn't we, when uh, the Prime Minister at that time, Stephen Harper, and, of course, the Premier Dalton McGuinty, uh cut a deal with the auto industry, of course, to basically, I think, to save the industry during the recession. Uh, but there was a lot of pushback. You're right, from the Western provinces. Says, hey, what about us? What's going on here? Uh, so that you're right, this puts pressure on. And your other point, by the way, I think Raphael is well taken. And this is being characterized as a great deal between Ford and Unifor. This doesn't happen without the federal government. I think so. Uh, well, that's that's questionable. I think that's where I think governments get played a lot. 
I think this this agreement would have happened irrespective of the government money, to be honest. This is the future where production's going. And when Ford looked at which kind of workforce is going to be able to deliver this sort of new technology, they were, you know, this is where Diaz is right. The, 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 the workers we have here are probably the best in all of North America. We have the best health care, by the way, which means it's a public health care system. The company doesn't have to own those costs. Whereas now, I think Ford and a lot of these big uh, employers in the U.S. are seeing that's a real kind of weakness of the U.S. model. They have to pay these health care costs. In the time of COVID, there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. I think this deal would have come to Ontario regardless of the government money. That's why I'm a bit skeptical. And, you know, it's not just the West that misses out on half a billion dollars. What about all the other sectors that are suffering? Restaurants. I was just on a show a couple nights ago talking about the restaurant sector. A million and a half workers work in that industry across the country. But those individual businesses are all too small to have the same level of voice that a major employer like Ford does or, or Unifor. Now, you could say those, those sectors should get more organized, you know, and I, I think they should uh, in order to have a bigger voice. Um, but I, I'm not sure if that if that's true, that the, the, the production wouldn't have come here. I think they know that this is the right place to invest in this sort of new uh, direction. And I think Jerry Diaz is uh, a very skillful negotiator who probably brought government to the table in order to just solidify and guarantee it. I, I don't disagree, but I think it was mutually beneficial for the federal government and for Ford and for Unifor, because uh, especially the Trudeau government uh, in the last couple of years, Raphael, have been really touting the future about electric cars, etc. Sure. And they were looking for some place to plant the flag. And well, this this is it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, I think again we should be uh, cautiously optimistic uh, and see how that plays out, how that federal funding and uh, government funding plays out. If it, if they've learned anything, they've learned that. You have to be very uh, tough on these companies and not assume goodwill because they don't have any. They'll, they'll run away. Well, from uh, you're right. The Oshawa example. Get them off the hook. Yeah, the Oshawa example was a great idea. What was it? A three-year commitment, uh, and yeah. and GM meant that it was only three years, and then we're leaving. Uh, no, yeah. they, no, no, no. That was supposed to be the beginning, not the end. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I know you have to be. You have to be uh, wide open. Your eyes have to be wide open in these negotiations for sure. But I, I. I Knowing, not knowing the specifics, I, I have a feeling that they, they, they probably didn't need that money in any event. But it's actually a, a way of governments to say that they're actually doing something <laughs> to keep jobs here. I, I totally agree with your skepticism, especially from the business end of things with Ford on this and, or with any of the automakers. Uh, but when you look at the time frames that they announced yesterday, uh, I mean, the work isn't even expected to begin until 2024. And then uh, that's one, three of them, I guess, or four, four of the five. And then the fifth one will be 2028 will start rolling off. So it seems as if this is at least an eight-year commitment to begin with. Uh, and I guess the key factor here is, uh, is the market going to grow? Um, I... I... I have seen reports um, uh, that show both on supply and demand that, they, you know, they've done these consumer surveys, like when you're mm -hmm. in the next life cycle of your car and what do you plan on buying? And there's there's been a, a marked change in people's uh, willingness or interest in switching to either a hybrid or, a, or an electric vehicle. So that's the demand side. I think consumer preferences and consumer interest is growing as new demographic cohorts enter into their car buying years. We're talking about millennials and so on. And then on the other side, the supply side, you're seeing companies making investments in infrastructure. I thought Petro Canada has a plan to basically have charging stations uh, ready by you know 2023 across the country in, um, in almost all of their current uh, gas stations. So if the supply and the demand 
uh, aspects of this market for electric uh, and hybrid technology keep increasing, I, I think I think there's no doubt that that is definitely where it's going. And then you have the accelerator, which could be government legislation, right? That just mm-hmm. basically starts mandating, uh, like they did in California and other jurisdictions in, in, in other parts of the world, that you need to transition by X date, as we did in the 1970s when we imposed fuel standards uh, on cars. That created a whole dynamic that that led to a lot of innovation, quite frankly, in making cars more fuel efficient, and then subsequently changed the demand and the uh, the supply of the whole industry. How important was it, uh, Raphael, for them to also secure the uh, the assembly of batteries uh, for the vehicles? Oh, that's huge because, of course, we don't know where consumer taste for actual vehicles will go. So if you're tied to a, a particular brand of vehicle, as we saw in Oshawa, they were building kind of these sedans that were just not not selling um, and vehicles of that nature. But if you have that critical infrastructure, the components that could go into any vehicle, regardless of where where the taste for the type of vehicle change, um, that's huge. And there's a lot of them that are called barriers to entry. There are going to be a lot of um, specific knowledge and capital both human and physical, that'll be tied up in the production of these these critical components. And then that's not easy to move. You know, it's easy to move just assembly, pure assembly. And that's why it's gone to the south to our southern neighbors or, or, or to Mexico. But this is kind of different. And I think that's, again, a credit to this, this organized, organized um, uh, approach that I guess Unifor took and also... Um, uh, that kind of strategic vision that probably Ford had about where to place this critical infrastructure. And I, I think we have a lot of things going for us in that sense because of the uncertainty uh, regarding COVID and other things. We have a few institutions that actually help us now, right? Uh, our healthcare system being publicly funded is a huge win for major employers like like Ford or the big autos that have to pay those costs when they're in the U.S. The other element of this too is is the technology that's uh, that's ongoing, and I think we tend to lose sight of that. I, I know you don't, but I mean, we in the average, uh, in the public, uh, I mean, you know, in the advent of electric cars so many years ago, I mean, they were usually much smaller vehicles, uh, not a whole lot of power. You know, there were cyclists that were passing them if you were going up a hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, the technology has improved considerably, and by the way, the, the charging capacity has increased. I mean, I mean, the Tesla is not a small car. And Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, there are SUVs that are now, well, they're starting to manufacture electric. Mm -hmm. I know there were hybrids before, but uh, that that really opens up the possibilities, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yes, I think so. And I think we have um, a real ability here to tie a whole supply chain. Um, What the the industry is looking at uh, is to change the the kind of materials that are used to make uh, batteries. And so right now we're highly dependent on China still. There's a whole set of rare earth metals that are mined there. And I th- it's not that those don't exist in other countries. It's just they can extract them easily there or more easily because you don't have the same constraints, shall we say, in an authoritarian communist regime when you need yeah. to mine something. That's, uh, how, that's how they build hospitals in three weeks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but there's a, there's a recognition that that supply chain now is fragile, given what's happened again with COVID. And so they're trying to create – and our north uh, here in Canada – has a lot of those same components. In fact, components that are easier to extract that aren't as toxic, uh, and that's where the future is. So I think there's a lot of reasons why we were chosen or why the, the uh, Canadian plants are, are being located here. And um, I think there's a lot of optimism. I think it's not clear 
that um, you know just moving to uh, electric vehicles will be a, a benefit to our environment. It has to be done in in, uh, in a way that is responsible. The mining of these critical components, uh, we can't disregard how that is done in order for this to be a net benefit to all of society. Uh, but, but if those things are taken into account and they're done responsibly and in jurisdictions where environmental rules are more upheld, then no, this is a clear win for everyone, right? As a society, we benefit from cleaner air and a more sustainable uh, way of, of, of moving people. Workers benefit from having these high paid jobs that will have a long lifeline, right? This is a, kind of being at the dawn of, of when Henry Ford was building his first factories at the turn of the 20th century. We're kind of in that same moment. Um, so, yes, there's a lot of things to be cautiously optimistic about, put it that way. Which segues very nicely into what I wanted to ask you next. Uh, the Canadian auto industry has taken a real beating over the last number of years. You know, the Oshawa plant and a number of other things. I mean, if, how, depending on how far back you want to go, you know, Brampton plants, the Chrysler plants, and places like that. Uh, does this, does this looking forward, this new technology that, that they're embracing, especially in Oakville, uh, is, is that going to breathe life back into this industry on this side of the border? Well, I'll push back a little. Um, I don't think... What's true is that employment in all manufacturing has been on the decline, and that's been due to two forces. Certainly the move to outsource, that's obviously a negative, but there's been another move, which is to add more capital, machinery, technology to the people that are there. So the same amount of people are producing more in any given plant or even with fewer people. So the, the industry itself isn't sort of on decline. In fact, parts manufacturing in Ontario uh, actually added jobs during that period. It's, it's a vital, really useful sector. Of course, it, it suffers when a big plant goes down, say in Oshawa. But you've got to remember, we have other manufacturers here that have done very well and have like, largely flown under the radar because they're not the big three. Honda, Toyota, uh, those companies have actually grown and expanded their production lines. So we actually, as an industry, as a sector, as, as if, you, if you kind of count the value added, of, of the products that are coming out of here and this and actually also services uh, because a lot of design and and R&D happens here um, then the value of that sector is not really shrunk what's shrunk are the number of people working in that sector um, and I think we have to keep that in mind when we start throwing money at a sector that is already uh, capital intensive that already has for although we talk about the the, the, the problems that the industry had around the turn of the Great Recession just before the, the COVID crisis, most companies were reporting their larger, largest profits in actual value and absolute value ever. Uh, so there's money in this industry. It's just not employing the numbers of people that it used to. And so that's why we have to always keep our mind if we're going to, government is going to come to the aid, which other sectors and industries that might employ more people that might soak up a lot of those lost jobs that we should maybe be helping more. <laughs> Uh, at this juncture. And, and as we go back to our earlier point, would Ford have invested in this uh, uh, technology with Unifor? I think absolutely they would have, irrespective of government money. I think what government money did was seal the deal, but also give government a chance to say that we, quote unquote, helped and we're a partner. Exactly. Well, I've got a couple of minutes left here. I've got to ask you about the ramifications of this. Uh, next, uh, Mr. Dias sits down with Fiat Chrysler and after that General Motors. Does this deal serve as a template for those negotiations? I think it's pretty unique because, well, yes and no, because what uh, I think what DS has done is shown that if companies are really interested in the sort of pivoting, the, the, the word of the, uh, the COVID era, yeah. pivoting to the future, that Ontario and Canada 
uh, is the place to do it and that you have a willing partner with Diaz. Diaz didn't want to make big news about this because although it's a win, I'm sure there were embedded in it some sort of, we'll say, concessions. Um, and that's probably not things that we um, we might think of as concessions, but because uh, I think on wages and all those things, those things were, were pretty tight. But there must be other things in terms of flexibility of how to use workers and how much uh, flexibility in terms of, of, of um, yeah, the utilization of labor. I think Diaz had a lot to say, probably with regards to, say, like technology. You know, if, if, if you're going to build these factories, you might need fewer workers, actually. So what, what would you do as a union to make that possible, um, retraining or, or some kind of, you know, um, extension of benefits to get you until, say, you're about to retire? So in that respect, there could be uh, useful um, incentives uh, that that the union has put out for the companies to say, yeah, we we definitely want to move in this direction, and now you know we have a kind of willing partner in the union to help us get there. And DS's links, seemingly very good links, uh, with with the politicians in this country, that's probably a, a win uh, for him as well and for the companies involved. Yeah, we saw that in past history, didn't we? I mean, that was one of the, Buzz Hargrove, who of course his Buzz, predecessor yeah. uh, did an excellent job of building that. government well, relations, right? Yes, yes. And one other thing, actually, that Diaz, now I realize, might have played right. He was, he was pilloried at the time. He said, you're wasting members' money. It's futile. But look what he did. When, when GM announced that they were going to move, he plastered the, the, the airwaves, uh, TV, social media, radio, with those ads that were pretty devastating to GM. That hurt GM. That hurt the brand capital of, of that company here in Canada, at least. And actually, it was noticed there there were shifts in consumption uh, away from GM towards actually Ford and, and Chrysler. So uh, although it looked like kind of wasted money because Oshawa never got back all those jobs, they did get some important R&D facilities that were located there. So that was a small, tiny win. But I think it was set up for this, because if you have a company that says, I'm going to walk away from Canada, well, Canada is still a pretty big market. We're the size of California, which would make it the largest, uh, second largest uh, individual market in in all of North in, of U.S. and Canada, right? So, so I think Diaz actually did play his cards right in that respect too, because you have carrots, but you also have sticks, and he and that stick was still, I think, in the minds of of of, of the negotiators uh, when they sort of came to the table, and I think that was a, actually, in retrospect, a smart move. Uh, we've got to leave it there for now. More to come on this, I guess, with the further negotiations. Uh, Raphael, always a pleasure to get your input into this. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Raphael Gomez, yep. of course, Director of the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the U of T. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.